to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resilience, emergency management, and anything that can be related to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show, um, whether we find someone to talk about it or you'd like to come on the show to talk about it, please feel free, send me an email. If you go to the Voice America page for the show, there is a button You can click on and it sends me uh, an email. I do respond to everything. So uh, feel free to uh, even just send general comments if you want. We also have opportunities for anyone who wants to advertise their product or service on the show or sponsorships. Same way, send me an email through the Voice America show page. I'd like to tell everyone that I will be speaking and presenting at the Continuity Insights Conference in San Antonio, Texas, April 20th to 22nd. So hopefully I'll see some of you there and uh, you'll see me walking around with a uh, hand recorder, I'm sure. So feel free to come on over and chat. I'd like to thank everybody at BoastAssessment.com. That's Boast, B-O-A-S-T, Assessment.com, who have a self-monitoring application where you can find out where your uh, continuity management programs and resilience programs are and help organize your resources. And uh, you can use it on a daily basis, weekly, monthly, or even a year. So check them out at BoastAssessment.com. And just as an FYI for everybody, because I know um, longtime listeners, you know I've talked to a lot of speakers from the Continuity and Resilience Today conference. And uh, this year they're moving that conference into October in Toronto this year, rather than in the May timeframe. So check that out, CRT uh, conference, and uh, I'm sure I'll have some more information for you as we go forward on other shows. Speaking of shows, today I'm actually quite excited about having today's guest. You'll all know that I love to read. I read a lot for education you know, purposes, entertainment purposes, or just to get you know, new opinions on things I, I may, sometimes I think I know about, but may uh, know about. And this book I came across, it's called Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the Truth, uh, sorry, and the True Path to Success. I read this book so quickly, not that it's an easy read. I was just enthralled by it. And I knew I had to reach out and get the author. And I am so lucky and honored today to have Professor Michael Unger on the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Wonderful to be here. Like I said, I'm really excited to have you here. And I just can't wait to start chatting with you right off off the bat. But for our listeners out there, because they're all around the globe, could you give us a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and you know, how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. I'm a, uh, I hold a research chair, a national research chair uh, here in Halifax, Canada at Dalhousie University. Um, and I'm a professor of social work uh, and also a family therapist and clinical social worker by training. So 
I come at this both from a research point of view as well as perhaps probably far more importantly, uh, decades of experience uh, as a clinician working with families uh, and individuals who are in really stressful environments. And I do that work indeed uh, all over the globe. Um, I'm just back from uh, uh, South Africa where we have a major research project. I work in uh, across uh, the western regions of North America in the oil uh, communities and, of course, in literally a dozen other countries uh, across Europe, uh, Asia, etc. Oh, well, I'm glad to have you here. And congratulations on the book. I, I thought this yeah. was a fantastic book. Thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate it. It was, it, was, it was a very, really fun book to write and, and kind of got, you know, the motivation behind it was I was a little bit, um, how can I say, is it okay to say pissed a little bit off, a little bit sure. angry, not angry, well, angry, sure. you know, kind of upset that I was constantly, as a resilience expert, sharing the stage all over the globe with folks, uh, a lot of sort of motivational speakers. And after a while, sometimes the messages, there was sort of this incongruity between what they were saying and what my own, what the research program that I was leading, uh, you know, multi-million dollars of research. And there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect sometimes between what I was hearing and what was I was actually finding, including my in my clinical work as well. I think that's why I was excited about reading this book as I went through it because there were so many uh, different ideas and you had different examples that I went, wow, that's different than, uh, you know, I attend a lot of conferences and obviously have guests on the show and read a lot. And I'm going, this is so different than all those other books on resilience. And I think that's why it just grabbed me as soon as I started reading it. Thanks. Sir. That that was sort of the intent, and I and I I was being pushed a lot by my audiences after they would hear me speak. People were coming up and saying, you know, have you written about this kind of thing? And I had, you know, I'd written some academic papers and this type of thing, and and some professional stuff, but but nothing where it was really brought out to the general public. And it, I mean, f- fundamentally, it, you're right. The, the book is meant to challenge us to better understand the, the idea of self help, and and to maybe push us a little bit out of our comfort zone that, you know, uh, self-help is not a do-it-yourself enterprise, unfortunately. It really mm-hmm. does depend on far more of the resources that we have around us. So, you know, this, this emphasis on the rugged individuals um, is just factually a little bit of a misrepresentation of why we actually achieve resilience. Well, let's start off with that call, uh, the question about resilience. How do you define Resilience, because I know, you know, having read the book, it's a little different than other people. So how do you define resilience? Yeah. And in fact, a lot of people in the field have moved away from that typical definition of, you know, resilience is your ability to overcome adversity or that bounce back or that type of thing, which puts all the responsibility on an individual's shoulders to heal themselves and to fix themselves. Almost all the serious researchers on resilience globally now are, like myself, I guess, so one of the leaders in that, but, but what we're all saying is it's much more about our ability to find an environment that brings out our best and boldest selves, um, as well as to make sure that, that, what, you know, that the, the environment that we experience al- allows us to, in a sense, negotiate to find the kinds of supports we need that are most meaningful to us. So I simply talk about resilience as two simple processes, our ability to navigate 
to make our way to the resources we need and our ability to negotiate, to get the things we need given to us in ways that make sense to us. And, and just to sort of, you know, whether we're talking about, say, for instance, you're, you know, you're in an office setting, uh, you've been given a, a workstation, which is very poorly adapted to your needs. Uh, it's kind of funny. I just recently, my, my own uh, office at my university was moved and we were set up in this brand new, beautiful building. Oh, it's great, you know, everything else. But when they put the desks in, Whoever did that didn't really consult with us as professors. So I got this desk, which is kind of the wrong shape, but it's kind of not very deep, and it has this weird hutch on top. I mean, it would be a great desk if I was maybe an accountant or maybe I was processing <laughs> paperwork as an administrator. But as a professor who tends to have a lot of sort of you know things that you spread out, you think, you have multiple screens, all that, this sucks as a desk. And in fact, at one point, this uh, young woman came up and knocked on my door and she was doing some audit of the desk and this furniture in the new building. And I happened to sort of start ranting at her, not her personally, but I said, oh, I don't know. What an awful desk. I can't believe whoever the person was that decided that this furniture should be in our offices as professors and everything else. <laughs> and then she kind of very tersely looked down at her check, you know, her, her, her flip chart in front of her and went, well, that would be me. I guess I, I say I'm not going to get a Christmas card, I guess, from her. But um, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a really on a very concrete level, we need to be able to navigate. We need to be able to get the resources we need. But they also have to make sense to us in ways. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a silly little example of a desk. And I, as a university professor, I can basically drag in any desk I want into my office. I have a lot of you know, control. But, but mm. you think about, you know, when you start thinking about... Um, training opportunities, or you think about, you know, the community in which you live, or indeed after a major, I know you focus a lot on disasters. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully we can get a little bit into that, but, this, but the fundamentally resilience is about, can you navigate and get and negotiate for what you need in ways that make sense to you? Well, that's interesting. How do you get started on that? Let's say that, um, you know, I, I've gone through some traumatic events. I, I, I'm not aware of any support systems in, in my life, you know, how do I look for that stuff? How do I get started on that? You know, and when, when you talk about some of the, the resources that can help us, uh, you know, where do I look for that stuff? And any examples? Yeah, that, that, it, it, it's an interesting one because very often we, when we're in a really tough situation, um, say like after divorce, say, our tendency is to think about, okay, I've just got to get my mindset. There's you know, books about mindset. I've got to have more grit. There's books about grit. Um, you know, I've got to sort of change my orientation. In other words, I've got to make myself adapted or adaptable to a potentially really difficult situation. And now that's actually part of the puzzle. I'm not against that, by the way. And there's some good evidence of it. But Let's face it, if grit and mindset worked and yoga, you know, yoga worked and mindfulness-based practices worked, then with, let's face it, I mean, Lululemon is selling more yoga mats than ever before. And yet, statistically, as I show in Change Your World, on almost every health statistic, we are getting worse, not better. So, I mean, whether we're looking at, you know, uh, medications for mental illness, addictions issues, living alone, 
uh, 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 rates of obesity, uh, 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 you know, it doesn't really matter. You take a statistic and you're going to find us trending down and not up, with the exception, by the way, of perhaps divorce, but that's just because no one's getting married anymore. Um, but, but, you know, if you kind of, if you actually begin to look at this, what we're, what we're, what you're actually doing is we're overemphasizing the individual change. And the first step often is about looking around your world for the supports you're going to need to get to a really tough time. So, so for instance, I always jokingly say, you know, before you buy the gym membership, you know, whatever, you might want to get a friend to buy a gym membership with you so that, you know, you're more likely to use it and not sort of, you know, uh, just kind of, well, I don't really keep going. That's everything. And there's actually some interesting science on this. So, for instance, um, there was, a, there was a, a sociologist out of Greece uh, a few years ago named James Georgias. And he says, for instance, that we tend to, like, stigmatize. If you're, you know, if you're listeners, anyone who's a single parent, you know, we t- that carries a certain, I don't know, taint a little bit, a lesser than kind of tone to it. Mm-hmm. And what Georgias said is, you know, the next time, uh, you know, a statistics bureau comes and measures and they tick the box as, oh, you're a single parent or something like that. He says, we're asking the wrong question of these people. You see, we should be asking a person who says, I'm a single parent. The question really should be, okay, tonight at midnight, if there was a crisis, you know, gosh forbid you have to run to the hospital with one of your children or something like that. How many, how many feet from your front door is there somebody that you could reliably go to, to backfill, to really help you, you know, to come into your house, to look after your other children or something like that. And if that's your mother who lives downstairs or a very close friendly neighbor, or, you know, maybe a sister who lives a a couple blocks away or something like that, that is probably a better measure of whether or not you are vulnerable as a consequence of being a single parent than say, just simply taking the box, I'm a single parent. And indeed, one could argue, if you're in a lousy marriage, potentially an emotionally abusive marriage or physically abusive marriage, then far better to be in a situation where you're a sole parent, but you have these supports around you. So often, mm-hmm. the first thing that I do when I'm, I'm working with folks is I say, let's, let's do a little audit of the resources that you actually have, or even better, that you might be able to develop um, to get yourself through a crisis, whether that is basically a, a, you know, a, your house being destroyed in a wildfire or a divorce or anything that happens that's um, untoward in terms of your life. So it's interesting that you know, we, we start with the uh, individual resiliency. If we have, if I have an organization that has a bunch of resilient people, does that actually start helping organizations who then you know, help communities? Like starting with myself being resilient, can I expand that, you know, my, inf- my, I guess my, uh, what do you call it, um, scope of influence by, if I'm resilient, oh. I can help out and, and, you know, my organization and then a couple of organizations become partners and, you know, support systems and that helps the community. Like, d- does it also extrapolate and big, um, grow in that direction or can it? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are some specific things I can get into a little bit later on, on you know, that make us more resilient. There's definitely a, a map of that. But the principle you're getting at, Alex, is, is, is really where the field is at now, which is this idea of sort of multi-systemic thinking. And what we're understanding is if you can create resilience in one system, it sort of triggers the resilience 
in other systems. Now, I mean, concretely, what that exactly means is you're right. If you have a workplace and you have good leadership that is proactively helping people avoid burnout, maybe flexing work hours, is attuned to the fact that maybe um, uh, a young parent is always stressed getting to work because they're dropping a child you know, uh, at a daycare and the traffic is hell and all that kind of stuff, right? If you, if you have that kind of leadership that's anticipating that, in other words, you have a good leadership or management system, then they're going to create you know, individuals who are going to be more a, capable through adapted environments to basically be able to withstand much more stress in their lives. Which then, by the way, we know those, 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 um, those individuals that are helped themselves, if you think about internal systems, they're far less likely to take stress leave. They're, they're, we know now that everything from their, um, their, their, their stress response systems, their cortisol levels, uh, even their microbiome in terms of their gut bacteria, their levels of, of, of um, the way their autoimmune systems work, uh, the level of inflammation. In other words, right down to the biology, we know that these systems are triggered by external systems, by workplace systems, which, of course, are receptive to things like, you know, basically it's kind of unsexy to talk about, but like workplace health and safety laws or social policies on uh, parental leave. All of these rather, well, you know, we're always, we're, I mean, you know, when was the last time you saw a motivational speaker stand up in front of 3,000 people and said, you know, believe in yourself and make sure you vote for a party that supports parental leave? Because that's actually going to have far more impact on your psychological well-being in the workplace than just believing mm-hmm. in yourself. Like, it's not, it's not sexy, right? It's just, it's just what we do. We want, to, we want to have that more Oprah-like moment where we're inspired to think it's all about us when mm-hmm. actually it's probably more about our leader, the leadership at our workplace, um, you know, optimizing our opportunities to be our better selves. That, that's an interesting point. I've got some questions because you mentioned health and safety uh, uh, there, and I kind of want to uh, circle back. See, where I knew I was going to be excited about talking to you today because I'm already going off script. So, no, <laughs> that's perfectly I like it when that happens. Um, today, we're talking with Professor Michael Unger, author of Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Professor Michael Unger, the author of Change Your World, The Science of Resilience, and The True Path to Success. Michael, in the first segment, uh, you mentioned health and safety, and I would just like to touch on that for a little bit. Um, How do you suggest, with with organizational resilience, uh, I'll back up a minute, uh, right now being a big hot topic, um, health and wellness is now one of these groups and health and safety, you know, that are supposed to be a part of this organizational resilience. How do you see organizations or individuals really leveraging that to help move them forward with resilience? Yeah, it's, so I, I of course study resilience. So I'm actually looking at all the protective and promotive factors that encourage well-being. But the first part of resilience is you have to pay attention to risk exposures. Because a protective mechanism only works when matched to a very specific, okay, too technical, but, but a risk profile. You've got to kind of know the danger before you're going to get the right, the, the right solution. Now, in the work that I do, what I've actually seen is a recurring theme of probably about a dozen key things that actually make us more resilient. And these seem to apply on the job uh, very, very much so. So, like, for instance, um, or in the workplace, anyways. I'll give me some examples. Um, for instance, take something like structure. We actually <laughs> seem to do better, and we seem to be safer and, and, you know, and when our environment is well-structured. It's a predictable expectations. We come into the workplace. We know the routines. We have a safety officer. You know, there's, there's sort of a script for what you, you, know, what you wear, how you wear it, where you go, how you move. Those structures not only keep us safe, but they also create a predictable environment, which is far less psychologically stressful. It's, it's predictable. We know what's going to happen. Just like one of the second things I've noticed is that we're much better off in, an, in our work environments when we have accountability. In other words, we're, there's some hierarchy, not necessarily hierarchy, but there's a sense of accountability, whether it's to others, for the product, for the production, but that, that, that we're responsible, just like at home when we're responsible to, you know, we have a dog, it has to be walked or a child has to be fed sort of thing. Um, right. Not that we should really, I don't know, should we equate dogs and children? I don't know. Maybe that's probably not the best. But anyway, you got the idea. Well, I'm um, a dog owner, so I say yes. <laughs> no, there you go. Um, so if you keep going down, I mean, obviously we need, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're healthier and safer if we're in uh, networks of social relationships in the job. And that can be encouraged. I was... I was just at a huge medical institute uh, in the U.S., and they were actually having a uh, sort of a Christmas cookie and milk exchange. So the, the, all the employees were able to move around this extremely a huge facility where people were sort of putting out, you know, homemade cookies and milk was being provided by the employer to kind of have these, you know, to basically build relationships, to get people out of their cubicles and interacting with each other. And that, of course, creates a sense of, of social safety, uh, of psychological security, uh, which kind of brings me, you know, if you keep going down the list, we, you know, we also know that we do better when we have a, 
opportunities for a positive identity, which really comes from being able to use our talents in the workplace. That, you know, a workplace mm-hmm. that honors us and, and brings out what we're good at. The same way that a workplace that gives us uh, opportunities for control. I mean, you know, whistleblower legislation that allows someone to sort of signal when there's a production problem without, you know, risk of losing their job and those kinds of things. These are not benign interventions. These are parts of creating a healthy and safe workplace where people are looking out for each other, just as, of course, a a workplace where we feel like we belong and and our contribution is valued, Um, just like a a workplace where we could honestly say that we're treated fairly. Um, I'm always amazed that we forget when we're talking about resilience, but a big part of resilience is also, again, this weird notion of social justice, you don't tend to, you know, you don't tend to hear that very much, right, as we talk in that hyper-individualized way. But, you know, mm-hmm. if I'm treated fairly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not subjected to har- harassment, the whole Me Too movement, whatever. You know, these things are not, these things are really adding to the safety we feel in our workplaces. Just as, by the way, um, you know, genuine responsibilities for others and, and for ourselves in the workplace and, of course, you know, getting our basic needs met, um, whether that is a pension plan or, you know, fair and equitable pay or simply having job security. We know, for instance, that mental health improves for people who have secure tenure in their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of studies that sort of show that trend. Just, by the way, as, as you know, obviously financial security um, uh, is really, you know, key. It doesn't have to be a lot. By the way, it doesn't have to be, you know, excessive amounts of money. It just has to be enough to you know, give you that sense of social comparison that relative to others in my same space, I feel secure financially. And of course, uh, physical health needs to be encouraged by our workplaces. For instance, in our workplaces, in terms of physical health, you can, you know, you can imagine there's gyms on site or cafeterias that are serving healthier food options, um, flex work hours so that we can actually get to the gym or at least get a walk-in over lunch hour. These are all strategies that are creating a, a healthier workforce, for sure. And, of course, let's face it, positive thinking. Uh, a workforce and a boss and a, a team that sort of encourages a positive orientation, some hope for promotion, um, you know, and opportunities for retraining. All of these things. I've just listed off a whole bunch of things. But together, mm-hmm. what they do is they create a safer, vibrant workforce, workplace that encourages people to, to feel safe, uh, psychologically safe, physically safe, um, healthier, um, you know, more energized. And it's in that space that I think they're going to be much more resilient, say, if the business is going through a really stressful period and they have to ask their employees to put in more hours or be much more flexible in their job descriptions. These are all things I'm seeing uh, in when I work with, say, teachers' unions, uh, teachers' groups, or nursing uh, groups, um, you know, that there's a, there's a lot of pressure on people. And if you, if you get it right, if you get this formula in the workplace right, it seems like people don't, well, frankly, they don't burn out and they don't take as much stress leave, which, of course, is, is what's actually causing a huge burden, especially when you, you start working with um, uh, firefighters, uh, all the sort of the service personnel uh, police forces, uh, these kinds of groups are all telling me when I work with them, they're all telling me, you know, the, you know, they're, they're really suffering from those kinds of problems in, in large part because of conditions in the workplace that they as senior managers can actually control. They can actually change them to encourage people to be more resilient and not have these kinds of stress responses. 
And it, you brought up a couple of points that I just want to touch on. If some of the uh, examples you gave, uh, would um, empowering people be a good way of saying some some of this? You know, because uh, you you can work in big organizations, and I've experienced it, but I don't feel empowered to actually do anything. That is such a good point, and in in that sense of empowerment, or if you like, efficacy, the chance to make decisions that affect you is one of the foundation stones for sure that, that we need to, to, to do better or to feel really um, safe, but also competent inside our workplaces. But if I could, I, I mean, sometimes, you know, if we focus just on that aspect, we sometimes mm-hmm. miss some of the, the other things that people um, can sort of bring, such as a sense of belonging. Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, the milk and cookies uh, is great, uh, whether it's an empowerment strategy, but I can, it does lead to a sense of belonging, maybe common mission. And from that, you might get people saying, okay, I do feel like I can make decisions because I'm trusting that my colleagues will support me. Even if I make a decision and it doesn't quite work out the first time, uh, I have a higher level of trust in my colleagues because I know my colleagues. So, you know, each of these factors, that's what we certainly found in our studies of resilience, is that each of these different things, the kinds of things I mentioned, seem to spark or be a catalyst for many of the others. Uh, so, you know, if I, if I feel like my culture is respected and I'm treated fairly on the job, then, of course, I'm probably more likely to um, uh, appreciate um, the routines of the workplace or I'm more likely to feel safe in the workplace. And if I feel safe, I feel like I belong. And, and thus it goes where I might form better relationships with other people. And we know that, you know, once you start you know, if you feel a little more camaraderie, you're more likely to cooperate and you're certainly more likely to help people uh, do the tasks that they need to get done. So you create a more productive workplace um, through something like a sense of belonging. So there's a lot of sort of indirect changes that we need to think of this more as a set of dominoes or multiple things that can happen for people that will spark them to be their best selves. Is it fair to say, I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but is it fair to say that uh, with that list of examples you gave, none of them really stand on their own? They're they're all interdependent some way with one of the others and help create one of the others? Exactly. In fact, give me an example. I was was giving a talk on this topic to several hundred teachers. And at the end of the talk, I had this uh, math teacher. She's in her probably mid-50s and been teaching for probably 30 years. One of those great math teachers who loved, you know, did all the math Olympics and the pre-cal courses with the high school students and wrote all the letters of support. Amazing woman. But she was so fed up lately with being told that she also now had to be the mental health support to her students. I mean, she was kind of old school and she hated her students. She didn't hate her students crying. I should say she loved her students. She just <laughs> kind of that thought was she was repulsed by the idea. What do you mean I got to talk to them about their feelings and whether or not their parents are divorcing? And oh my gosh, I don't want her. I do not want one of them in my office crying. That is not me. And what I <laughs> discovered was she was, I think she was kind of right. Like, like yes, I, I actually support teachers becoming more of a mental health support to students. But in this case, this was a woman who felt passionate about the work she did. That was her powerful identity. And she used to feel like she belonged in her school. And suddenly, she was being shaken out by being asked to do something that she didn't feel competent doing. She didn't feel like that was her mission statement. 
Um, <laughs> she she was be- she felt like she was really being treated unfairly by her school board. Uh, she was under tremendous stress as a consequence of it, and t- I predicted that she would basically be on stress leave within a few months. Um, because you know you look at that situation and it's not really sustainable. She all that things that had made her workplace um, supportive and safe for her were being set asunder by a new policy. And when people are in those situations, they, well, they vote with their feet or they, they vote with their stress response system and they opt out. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, the school board could have simply said, you know, we'd like everyone to be aware of the mental health problems of the kids, but you know, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, just make sure you know enough to send a child who looks a little bit off to someone on the team who can deal with this. Um, and that would have probably been a much more benign intervention or way of sort of supporting all the staff to bring out their own special qualities. And I'm sure, I'm sure people in other work settings would think of very different examples of that where, um, you know, people have the capacity to sort of use their talents and use their skills to build positive identities that are reflected back to them by others. Now, speaking of examples, I'm going to change gears a little bit here uh, because you wrote about an example in the book. Um, it's not long, but it just, as soon as I read it, it just captured me. And that was the example you gave of Cinderella and support systems. <laughs> you know, I, it, I know it might sound funny, but it actually yeah. illustrated things so well that, I, you know, it's something that I want to make sure we touch on here. Can you explain it? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. People people will remember the Cinderella story, and then from that, remember this key lesson about resilience being more external. So, look, we we, we always tell the story of Cinderella as this incredible kid. His mother dies, father dies. She grows up with that evil stepmom, poor stepmom. They always get a bad rap, and you know, she has <laughs> she 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 just has this great little spirit and little friends that are birdies and all the rest of it, and. The fairy godmother enters her life, turns a pumpkin into a golden carriage, whisks her off to the ball with the prince. She enchants the prince, has the right shoe size, and married and happily ever lives happily ever after. Kind of like, as I say, the Meghan Markle story or something like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, the story is called Cinderella. And I'm, I'm going to argue the story, the story is not really about Cinderella at all. You see, this whole story hinges on the fairy godmother. And if you remove the fairy godmother, I can prove it to you because then you, all you have is an abused kid growing up in an awful household who's lost her parents, lost, you know, lost her mother, lost her father, growing up with the evil stepmom, evil stepsisters, being bullied and harassed, lives in a kingdom with no social safety net. The prince, all he does is spend his money on gala balls for the rich and famous. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no schooling, no social workers, not one social worker is ever mentioned in this story. Um, this kid is going to be like the kids that I spent most of my career working with, and she's going to reach 14 or 15 and simply run away from home. But she doesn't end up enchanting the prince in the palace because there's no fairy godmother. So she ends up behind the palace, probably cold and hungry and swapping sex for a place to sleep at night. And, you know, that is not that far a stretch to say that the story of Cinderella the princess or Cinderella the I, I don't say this lightly, but the prostitute or a child who gets trafficked into the sex trade, that story all hinges on the fairy godmother. And I like to think that, you know, if you're a supervisor in a corporation going through, you know, a stressful change period or something like that, or maybe you're a teacher or an educator, you are 
a fairy godmother, or if you prefer, fairy godfather, to the people who are relying upon you. And your work will pivot whether or not they will show resilience and thrive or simply succumb to the stressors that they're experiencing and follow a very uh, different trajectory into, into potential chaos and crisis. Well, on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. But first, I just want to say thank you for that example, because that was the example that really changed my way of thinking of resilience. So that's why I wanted to make sure I got you here to talk about it. It really made a difference. Thanks for that. And so we've come to the end of our second segment. Today, we are talking with Professor Michael Unger, author of Change Your World, The Science of Resilience, and The True Path to Success. We'll be right back. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Professor Michael Unger, Change Your World, The the Science of Resilience, and The True Path to Success. Uh, Michael, we've had two great uh, segments. In this last segment, I'd like to talk about um, uh, what are some of the ways we cope with uh, trauma and disasters and crises. I know you've got uh, some examples in your book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, it's a great idea that, you know, we we do tend to have an incredible capacity to get through adversity. That's, I mean, that's, a, that's probably the very positive message that resilience teaches us. But there are, there are different ways it looks. You know, it's, uh, you know, we typically think about people recovering. Uh, you know, if they have the resources around them, they'll dip in their psychological development. That, you know, they kind of have a hard time, if you will. But most of us, you know, they kind of come back to the level of normal functioning. They go back to work. They, they, get, they get it back together. Um, they go through rehabilitation, whatever. Um, uh, some people just show a pattern where they're completely unaffected. Um, a lot of people, though, to tell you the truth, they actually just show what's called minimal impact. 
because we have faith communities, um, good, solid, uh, you know, uh, communities, we have safe streets around us, we have, you know, housing, we have a paycheck, we have a family member to look in on us. Most of us record, you know, sort of this little bit of a waiver, we kind of dip, we go back up, we dip again, but most of us maintain some sort of normal functioning because of all these supports around us. Even the death of a spouse can can trigger a community that comes in around us. Where, where I live, I often joke we're we're casserole people. You know, I mean, like you know, <laughs> you know, the you know the the, the the woman down the street breaks her hip, or gosh, her did her husband dies, or something. I mean, she gets casseroles, low a freezer full of casseroles, so to 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 you know to help her through that crisis sort of thing. Um, but, but we, you know, these, these things are often there. And, and, of course, some people show what's called post-traumatic growth. Uh, mothers Against Drunk Driving would be, a, you know, an uh, unfortunate example of that, where, you know, women who had lost their children to a drunk driver started a national, international movement to address that kind of problem. Um, so those are, those are examples of when we're quite well-resourced and quite rugged, we kind of bounce back. We, we do have the resources to kind of come through, and we're... We're able to navigate and negotiate for what we need to, 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 to do well. Sometimes, though, it's interesting that when people, sh- in, my, in my work, we often see that when people are poorly resourced, or, you know, things aren't quite as good as they should be, they show other patterns like avoidant behaviors. Um, they emotionally shut down. And, in fact, they've, they've shown this, that children, say, in an, an abusive home, will emotionally shut down and that that's actually quite a healthy response while the child's in a situation where they're unsure if being emotionally vulnerable is going to be met with more violence or more problems. Um, the same thing with people who are immigrants. In the first generation, the healthiest thing you can do is not acculturate, which is kind of like everyone says, well, you mean you're supposed to acculturate? Well, actually, no. If you acculturate, you lose your sense of culture, your sense of continuity, your identity, at least in the first generation. But, um, you know, uh, so, so sometimes this avoidance strategy works. Sometimes hidden different kinds of very particular adaptations that are very specific to a context where maybe you use like some weird pattern of, of, um, you know, you know, uh, letting someone, I don't know, uh, temporarily boss you around in the job site because it gets them off. You know, it just convinces them that they're, they're all powerful because there's some sort of narcissistic personality that you're dealing with. Sometimes just, allowing the situation to be sort of weird can actually get you through a crisis. And of course, sometimes, unfortunately, if all else fails and we have no resources at hand, people do sometimes just choose maladaptive coping strategies, whether that is going on sick leave or indeed, you know, unfortunately drinking heavily. Those strategies are awful and they're not the best ones. But sometimes people have absolutely, they can sometimes feel like they just have absolutely no other choice to deal with, whether it's, uh, and, you know, they tend to tumble into things like opioid addiction and that type of thing. It's certainly what I see. And that's usually the result of traumatic exposures, traumatic experiences where there just didn't seem for people to have options to, to, to heal themselves in more socially desirable ways, which isn't great, but it does happen. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned that casserole uh, community. Uh, I, I guess would it be fair to say that for many people there are there is a support system out there that they may not even know of, because I I, I I'll go back to the uh, blackout back in uh, two thousand three I think it was the the big you know East Coast blackout. Mm-hmm. Um, I met more neighbors 
at that time and chatted with more people than ever before, you know, that lived in my neighborhood. And I didn't know that all these people were there and what they did, but yet an adverse situation brought us all together. And, and there's, there's a lot of good research exactly backing up what you're saying, Alex, which is that sometimes in a crisis, um, people can experience this kind of reevaluation of their personal values, or indeed they expand their network. Suddenly their neighbors are helping build sandbags around their house before they you know, get flooded. Um, there, there's a lot of, a lot of good evidence that when we stop just looking, you know, to accommodate stress, by, by changing our mindset, and we actually look around for the resources around us, we create more sustainable change. So, so for instance, um, when Fort McMurray had the, the, the major, uh, fires and, you know, 85,000 people evacuated, 2,500 structures burned to the ground in the community. What was interesting was the, 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 the banks and the insurance companies put their, some of their staff onto those big buses that the um, band, rock bands use and toured them around to the shelters where people had been displaced. And they got, them, they, they got people the resource of basically getting their insurance claims started and a little bit of cash from the banking machine on board the bus. And what these, what, by people sort of, you know, basically getting these kinds of more physical resources, they were able to prevent people from developing post-traumatic stress from the, the, the tragedy of losing their house and witnessing and being a victim of a large fire. Um, but they also instilled in people the positive orientation towards the future. In other words, they said to the people, you know, you're going to be building your house again within six months. That is going to mean that you're going to return to your community. You're going to have a future again. Um, and when you begin to, you know, there was a wonderful picture of this girl who was, she was going to miss her uh, high school graduation. And somebody found a dress, even though the dress had been burnt in the fire. And suddenly the high school was hosting to the generosity of so many strangers. The high school was able to pull off its graduation ceremony. And when you begin to sort of see these efforts around us, I think it, it changes us uh, on a level that inspires us to be our, our best selves. And in fact, instead of just talking about, you know, vicarious trauma and all these negative ideas, in my field, we're now talking about things like vicarious resilience. We're talking about that if you see resilience, if you see in others, if you're a supervisor and you see people coming through adversity and still coming to work and still pushing through and still striving, you are, you take that home with you, not they say, you know, not from the, just the trauma of what the person's experienced, but you are inspired to say, wow, life is really full of possibilities. And, and I, I like to think in those terms of, 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 of us reaching out and, and really, you know, maximizing our opportunities to access the resources that are going to help us through a crisis. Well, believe it or not, we only have about six or seven minutes left. Uh, it's amazing how fast time flies. In, <laughs> in our last few minutes, um, do you want to talk about the principles of resilience? Sure. Um, I guess, uh, you know, really there's, there's uh, different things that you can sort of uh, think about in terms of, you know, with principle. Um, first of all, resilience is slightly different than positive psychology, um, meaning that I look at the way people cope with adversity. And when there's an adversity, it changes what you need in terms of a resource. So we all need, you know, we all need a positive attitude towards the future, but boy, that changes, that's even more important if your house is burnt down. And 
the second one is that resilience is really a process. I, I know sometimes people talk about, oh, you are resilient. That's a bit of a misspeak. What I think people are saying is that in that, when you're exposed to that particular danger or threat, you show a particular set of qualities that you are using. It's a process of using those qualities to achieve an outcome. And the outcome is usually, well, I'm happier, more stable, I have financial stability, my, you know, my children are okay, I live in a nice house, I get a job. Um, so resilience is usually thought of as a process that helps us to achieve a certain outcome. And it's, it's kind of sort of good to know that. Um, and of course, um, as I, we talked about earlier t- today, uh, you know, changing one system and making it more resilient means that you change others. So for instance, if, if you're a single parent and you're stressed about money and everything else and you have an opportunity or you have a family system which could support you and is pretty strong, ask them to help you know, alleviate your child responsibility so that you can go and enter another system, an education system, to retrain. And again, as you sort of build up that strength in, a, in a, at your educational system and what you have educationally, then you're more likely to be able to change your job or your employment. So each system that you change, change whether it's a psychological system, a, health, a physical health system, or an education system or a family system, each one sort of has a domino effect to the other, which, which really means that these systems are complex and open and, and, and constantly affecting uh, one another. So that systems, in a sense, they also learn. They, they, they can change. And, and that's really the optimism of, of, um, of resilience. So, uh, you know, I, you, could, you can see this not just at the individual level, but if, you can also take this conversation up to the level of communities. So, mm-hmm. you know, even at the level of a community, like, for instance, um, there, there was a, years ago, back in the 90s, uh, Summerside Prince Edward Island in eastern Canada um, lost its Air Force base. The, the Air Force base closed. But you saw this community, as a consequence of that, reimagine themselves, look at their strengths, and reimagine themselves as not just a, you know, dependent on a single industry, the Air Force base, Suddenly, they became a city, a town, which is now much stronger because they've imagined themselves as an aeronautics park that does all kinds of things with airplanes and aeronautics because they had the facilities, but they also had the people with the training that they could diversify um, the economy. And I'm working with oil and gas communities that are reimagining themselves as well because they understand that, you know, as we move towards um, zero carbon economies or as we, we just simply deal with a stagnant uh, international uh, uh, price for uh, crude, that, you know, they're going to have to be making some changes. But again, these systems that are changing, whether it's an economic system, a community system, a governance system, these systems then have influences on family systems. Do, do parents have jobs, which have an indirect system on how our children are doing? who then go to school and have been, you know, the school systems have influence. So when we get out of this, if, if, if we're managing people, we're ultimately managing multiple systems interacting that are hopefully all demonstrating some element of resilience and completing the story of what makes a resilient individual nested inside a resilient community, which is nested inside of you know, hopefully a resilient country. Yes. Agreed. I I really like the idea. You know how it, it it grows. It can grow. You know all the and like a, I don't want to say a spider web, but uh, you know you start at the center, but it can grow. 
you know, to organizations, multiple organizations, create the community, multiple communi- communities to the country. You know, like it, it all links. You know, I, I like that concept. Which opens up possibilities, too, because if you're stuck <laughs> like Cinderella, you know, it, it means that you don't actually have to run to the streets to survive. If you live in a, if, you know, if there's other systems, one of the, I have a colleague um, who does a lot of work in the education system, and, she, and it show, she showed very clearly that it's, you know, if you want, if a teacher wants to improve the performance of uh, his students, it's about the, the teacher getting better training or the teacher having better mental health. Like, you know, we often say we're going to try and improve the scores from the students, but they've actually shown that if you have a healthier, happier, better trained teacher, student scores come up. And this is this kind of thinking more a little bit like, you know, let's face it, it's a lot of work to change individuals. They are stubborn. We don't like to change. Um, It's difficult to sustain the changes. We don't like to adapt. But if you can transform the world around us and do what Richard Thaler has talked about is nudge us in the, in the right direction, um, my work on resilience, certainly, and the studies that we've done certainly show that you, you can move people towards being, being better and functioning much better and having fewer mental health crises, both in the workplace and, indeed, in, in their home environments as well. well. Believe it or not, we've just about run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> We could, we could, I have a sense, keep going here. This is, this is, it's, uh, it's just irrelevant, isn't it? (laughs) Between home and life and workplaces, it's just, resilience is a wonderful paradigm. It just, I find it very optimistic. It just changes the the flow of what we talk about. Yes, I agree with you. And um, so, like I said, your book actually helped change my thinking on resilience because I was always looking at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, business continuity and disaster planning and, uh, you know, emergency response from, from that side of things, never really realizing, you know, the support system part was there. Um, and I, you kind of alluded to that. You've become a very beginning. godmother now. So um, I, I really enjoyed the book. So thank you very much for, uh, you know, um, for joining us today. I, I greatly appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolute pleasure being here. And to everybody out there, again, if there's a topic you want us to talk about, please send me an email or you'd like to sponsor or promote your product or service. Um, We can do that as well. Uh, I will be speaking again in San Antonio, uh, Texas, April 20th to 22nd, I believe the date is. And uh, in the meantime, everyone, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.